So who knows that all weeks are not created equal? Anybody know that? Think about your life for just a minute. All weeks are not created equal. Each day has 24 hours. Each week has seven days. And each month, or no, 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 no. Here we go. Each year has 365 days, right? But they're not all equal. There are good days and bad days. There are good weeks and bad weeks. There are good years and bad years. For about a decade, Deanna and I, at the end of every year, we would say, there is no way the next year will be as bad as the year that we just finished. And that went on for about a decade. We don't say that anymore. <laughs> not because they can't get worse, but because it's pretty amazing. We are loving life these days and things. But think about your life. Think back over your life a little bit. I remember the week that I got married. That was a game changer. Yesterday, Deanna and I were out and about, and we saw a, a bride-to-be and the, you know, the little hens thing going on and all that. And we thought, her life's about to change forever. <laughs> and all the married people said, yeah, yeah. And it's a good thing, right? And then I remember the week that we had our first kid. And they let us take him home from the hospital. And they should not have allowed that by any stretch of the imagination. But I remember that. And apparently it was a good thing because we decided to have three more after that. I don't know if we decided or anyway. Yeah. I remember the bittersweet day or week that led up to us leaving our friends and family and home in the USA to come to live in Australia. That was bittersweet. And then I remember the week that we left Australia thinking we were never coming back. That was not a happy week at all. Ask the security guard at the airport. I remember the week that we came back to Australia for good. That was a happy time. I remember the week that our youngest daughter got diagnosed with not one but two ultra-rare, life-threatening diseases. It was not a fun week. I remember the week that she got a bone marrow transplant that saved her life. That was a good week. I remember the week my first grandchild was born to this same daughter who wasn't necessarily supposed to live, much less ever have children. Lots of great weeks in there, lots of not-so-great weeks. And as you think back across your life, think about the weeks that you remember the most? What was the best week of your life? What was the worst week? If you're online, just tap, type it in the chat. Hey, this was the worst week of my life, and this is what happened. Keep it to like a couple sentences. Uh, but uh, yeah, what was the best and worst weeks of your life? The ones that were the game changers. Because at the end of the day, we need to understand that all weeks are not created equal. There are some that are going to stand out. There are going to be some that you don't remember at all throughout your life. Today, on the Christian calendar, is a day known as Palm Sunday. And that day starts off a week that we call Passion Week. And anybody passionate about something in your life? Maybe your footy team? Who's your footy team? Let me hear it. Come on. Okay, there are no passionate people at WBC, at least when it comes to footy, right? So, but that's okay. I'm glad you're not that passionate about your, your free team. Are you passionate about Jesus? Yes. Much better, much better. Good, good. All right. But hey, that word passion, when we talk about Passion Week, 
It's not that excitement and that energy and everything that we're talking about. The word passion, when we look at the Greek word that's used here, it's pathos, and it refers to suffering and pain and death when we're talking about the last week of Jesus' life. Now, there are four sections of the New Testament part of our scriptures that are dedicated to telling us a historical account of the life of Jesus. So four guys wrote those accounts, and they started out, well, by the way, they tell us that all weeks are not created equal. We're about to see that clearly. But they started out by giving us a brief uh, background of when, when Jesus was born, and then they move into the last three years of Jesus' life and ministry. And we see, we learn a lot about Jesus during that time. We see him primarily teaching and preaching. We see him healing the sick. We see him casting out demons, performing miracles like turning water into wine and walking on water, raising the dead back to life. Normal, simple, everyday things, right? But then these authors of the Gospels, the four Gospels, they spend 40% of the real estate in their writing, 40% of that dedicated to one week. One week of Jesus' life, because all weeks are not created equal. It's great that we have that 33 years of Jesus' life chronicled before that, but then 40% of their time was dedicated to telling us about the last week. See, this week begins with Jesus riding into Jerusalem to shouts of, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And by the end of the week, the same people are shouting, crucify him. Wow. A week can change a lot. What happened in that last week of Jesus' life? How do we get from celebration to crucifixion? Today, we're going to look at five days of that week. And then Deanna, Pastor Deanna's already encouraged you to come out Wednesday night when Pastor Enneke is going to be talking about some more, reflecting on some more of those Days of Jesus' life. And then Good Friday, Pastor Justin's actually speaking at Equip for the Wyndham Ministers Network uh, service on that. So be sure to take part of those. But we're going to lead up to those today. We're going to go through this last week or part of the last week of Jesus' life. So we start out with Sunday. Sunday is Palm Sunday, and we see there the triumphal entry. And we're going to start, set that up by looking at Mark's gospel. Mark was writing in chapter 11 of the book of Mark. He writes this, go into the village over there. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and we'll return it soon. Now, how many of you see some problems there? Yeah, only a couple of you? Okay, the rest of you are, are, are Christians that have been in church forever, so you already know the story. But if you're just an average person and you read this, there are some problems inherent in what's going on here. This is a very strange request for many reasons. First of all, Jesus has been hanging out with his disciples for three years, and everywhere they went, they've been walking. Haven't needed a donkey to ride before now. They've just been walking from town to town and village to village, preaching, healing people, all those things I said earlier. So that's one reason that this is a strange request. Now, potentially they knew that he was going to be riding in as the king, all right, into Jerusalem. But if he's riding in as a king, why does he need a donkey? 
Does a king ride in on a donkey? Not normally. Normally, it'd be a white stallion, right? But there's a prophecy in the book of Zechariah, chapter 9 and verse 9. One of the Old Testament prophets said this was going to happen this way, that he was going to ride in on a donkey. Now, there's some other confusing things about this, and it's probably where your mind went to right away. Jesus is telling them to go get somebody else's donkey and bring it. And by the way, if somebody stops you and asks you, just tell them I need it, and we'll bring you back later. What if they hadn't have stopped him? What if they hadn't have stopped him and asked? They would just be taking the donkey. Is that okay? Work that out in your life groups this week. Seriously, it's one of your questions. So, we see the disciples doing what Jesus said. I find it amazing that they would have wondered about the request. It was strange, but they were obedient to what Jesus asked them to do. So they bring the donkey to Jesus, and he begins to ride into Jerusalem. And then, all of a sudden, he stops. He stops and looks over Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 19, Luke's account of this says this. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you, of all people, would understand the way to peace. But now it's too late, and peace is hidden from your eyes. As Jesus is riding into town, he stops, he looks over the city. Anybody been up to uh, Sky High, Mount Dandenong, and looked over the city of Melbourne? I did that back in the year, I think it was 2000, and that kind of got me right here, thinking about Melbourne and, and the need here for Jesus. But Jesus is looking over the city, and it says he began to weep. Now, I think if we made a motion picture of this, we would have a, a tear just slowly rolling down Jesus' cheek, right? Wouldn't that be dramatic to see him looking out over the city and see that tear just, just rolling down? That's not what this is saying. It says he began to weep. We would see this as ugly crying, okay? That's what Jesus was doing here. The word weep there means this. It comes from the Greek word kleo, which means to weep, wail, or lament, to cry freely and profusely from sadness or distress. This was not just a, a sad moment with a little tear. Jesus was gutted as he looked over Jerusalem, and he felt their rejection. He knew what was about to happen. He knew where he was going. He knew how this week was going to end. But his tears weren't for himself. It wasn't because of the rejection. It was because they had missed out on the way of peace. And he said, it's too late now. You're not going to find it. And that broke Jesus' heart. Continuing on the way to Jerusalem. This is Sunday. We see a dramatic scene unfold. It says, many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So in this scene, we see people throwing their, their clothes in front of the donkey and palm branches. By the way, this is a donkey that's not tame. It had never been ridden before, and so far it's doing all right. And now you're throwing all these clothes in the way and palm branches and everything. Think about that for a moment. That's going to be a major distraction for this donkey. That's not going to be fun for the donkey. See how the donkey keeps pressing on. We're going to come back to that in just a second. But then they said, Hosanna. The word Hosanna literally means save now. They're saying, Hosanna, save us now, save us now. That's what we want. 
They saw Jesus coming in and they had high hopes. They had great expectations that he was coming in, not because they saw him as the son of God, but because they saw him as someone who was about to rescue them from all their problems, from the Roman oppression that they were enduring. They were expecting a conquering king. You might start thinking about how this went from celebration to crucifixion by the end of the week. Interesting side note, this donkey and the disciples were, were actually quite a lot alike. They, they both were given an opportunity. The disciples were given the opportunity to go, get the donkey, or to go get the donkey, and they were obedient, and they faced obstacles. So did the donkey. It was an opportunity for him to usher Jesus in to Jerusalem, and he was obedient, but he faced opposition, the clothes, and all of that stuff. So, so imagine that, and if you want to hear a sermon about that, go back to last year's Palm Sunday message, and you can find out more about that. So Jesus gets to the temple that Sunday. He looks around, assesses the situation. Then he goes back to Bethany, where he's going to spend the night with his disciples. And then we come to Monday. Monday is an amazing day. It's, a, it, it's, it's one that we see Jesus in a little different light than we have before. Monday is the day that he cleansed the temple. But they're, they're, they're on their way back to Jerusalem, back to the temple, and they come along the way, and they see this fig tree. And Jesus is hungry, and he says, oh, I'm going to go over there to the fig tree. I'm going to grab a fig because I'm hungry. I'd probably grab something else. But anyway, he was going to grab a fig because this tree had lots of leaves, and it looked great, but it had no figs. And he cursed the fig tree and said, you're never going to bear figs uh, again. It looked good, but it had no fruit. And this, my friends, was an illustration of the Jewish religious system of the day. What Jesus was about to confront was illustrated in this fig tree. They had fake faith. They were religious but not fruitful. So then it says again in Mark chapter 11, it says, when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. How many like this story? You, li you like it when Jesus comes in and clears the temple, says, I'm, I'm gonna make things all right here. Th this is a mess and I'm gonna straighten things out. I, I like that. I, li I have that personality. I like to go in and see a problem and fix it. Why are you laughing, Pastor Justin? So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like that story, but I want you to understand that this is not what we see of Jesus most of the time. Most of the time, we see Jesus not turning over tables, but gathering at tables with people who are marginalized, with people who are the outcast. It was the religious people that really got under his skin, and he wasn't going to put up with this anymore. Imagine the scene. If you came to church today, and there was food trucks all around, and coffee carts and everything, and then we were selling things that were going to help you worship, and you had to have these things to get in the door. All right? You couldn't come in and worship without the things that we were selling, whatever those things are. And you thought you knew what you were going to bring, and you brought your own. So you thought you were going to be okay. 
But when you got there, they said, oh, no, no, that one's not going to work. You got to buy this one. That's what's going on, okay? They're bringing sacrificial animals to the temple, and they would get there, and some of the people waited till they got there to buy them, and that's just silly. It's like buying your, your snacks and everything at the footy instead of taking them in with you, but they, because they're too expensive, right? So, so these guys were ripping people off, charging them way too much. Some people were bringing their sacrifice. They would get there, and then they would say, oh, wait a minute, that sacrifice has a blemish. That sacrifice isn't good enough. You're going to have to go buy one from our merchants. You reckon there might have been a conflict of interest in all of that? Maybe some kickbacks, things like that? I reckon there was. And there was also people coming from different regions uh, of the area that used different money. So there was money changers there that were like the airport money changers, right? <laughs> Do not change your money at the airport. You're not going to get the best rate there. All right. So that's what these guys were doing. They were ripping people off. And Jesus came in, and that annoyed him. And he said, you have made my father's house. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You made it a den of thieves. That's what he was talking about. He wasn't grumpy because they had a coffee cart. He was grumpy because they were ripping people off. They were stealing from the people. Notice he said that this is a house of prayer for all nations. That is key. Think about it for just a moment. Who's the temple for? The temple was for the Jews, right? It was for the, their, them to offer their sacrifices. And there was an outside court for Gentiles and that. But, but Jesus said, it's a house of prayer for all nations. I would suggest to you that this is one of the things that really ticked the chief priests off and the, the leading priests because they, they, it was not Jesus coming to make Jerusalem wonderful and great. It was Jesus coming to be inclusive, to open things up to the Gentiles as well. So now we, we have the religious leaders really grumpy, and we've got Jesus grumpy. How, how good is that? We're setting up for a showdown, right? And this, this is just Monday. Uh, look at Matthew chapter 21, because I, I want you to notice the difference between what had upset Jesus and angered him and what upset the religious leaders. It says, the leading priest and the teachers of the religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, Praise God for the son of David. But the leaders were indignant. They asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? The temple was a place of worship. Jesus and the priest, this is something they had in common now, they held that in high esteem. They thought that was really important, that the temple be a place of worship and, and reverenced. But they had a fundamental difference in what they thought that should look like. You see, the Pharisees were shocked and irritated by the things that Jesus was doing and that the kids were calling out in the temple, right? You ever hear kids calling out in church? Yeah? How many of you get annoyed by that? Do not raise your hand. <laughs> That's a trap. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a beautiful thing. When we hear kids calling out. Because you know why? Because that means we've got kids. Isn't that great? Religious leaders didn't think so either. So if you want to identify with them, that's okay. So, so, but they weren't in the least concerned about the merchants and the money changers that were out there ripping people off. See the contrast between what upset Jesus and what upset the religious leaders? 
That, that just amazes me. The so the religious leaders are upset, and they don't like what Jesus is doing. So they start thinking about killing Jesus. They start uh, thinking, we, we really need to get rid of him. But they say, but the people will riot. And they did not want that because if the people riot, then Rome is going to come in, and they're going to take over. And the little bit of freedom that the Jews might have had would have been taken away uh, even from that. So they said, oh, we're, we're kind of in attention here. We need to get rid of this dude. But the people will really get ticked, and it's going to cause us bigger problems. Jesus is presenting for the first time as the Messiah. That's why he cleansed the temple, because he had the authority to do so. Up to now, everything Jesus did, all the miracles and everything, he would always say, hey, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Keep this to yourself. Of course they didn't. They went and they, they told anyway. But Jesus is now saying, it's time. I am the Messiah. So we're starting to get a picture of what happened. Then, that was Tuesday, or no, that was Monday. So Monday night, they go back to Bethany. And Tuesday, we have tensions and teaching going on. The fig tree that had withered, when they were coming back to the temple, Peter saw the fig tree, and he was amazed. He's like, wow, Jesus, you cursed the fig tree, and it's actually withered. And Jesus like, yeah, that's what happens when I, when, I, when I do something. And then he used it as a teaching moment for them. He taught them about faith. He said, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. You must really believe it and not have doubt in your heart. And he went on telling them that they needed to have faith in God. So the religious leaders now were back at the temple. He gets back to the temple, and again, this is on Tuesday. He had been healing people in the temple. Matthew chapter 21, verse 14. You can go look that up yourself. Uh, he had been healing blind people and lame people in the temple. So the religious leaders then confront him. Look at Mark chapter 11 again, verse 27. Again, they entered Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, teachers of religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do them? So Jesus had cleansed the temple. He was healing the blind and the lame, and he was teaching in the temple, and they said, who gave you the right to do this? And from there, we have several conversations that went on. He, his first response was to ask them, well, I'll, I'll tell you about my authority if you tell me where John got his authority. And that confused them because they said, okay, if we say that John got his authority from God, then, they, then he's going to say, why didn't you follow John? And if we say, oh, John did that on his own back or from the authority of people, then uh, all the people are going to get ticked off, and, and we've already covered that. We can't do that. So they said, we don't know, right? So it's, all, it's okay to sometimes say you don't know if, you don't, if you're stuck. But the, the religious leaders did that. And then they went on, and he gave them a parable about uh, uh, evil farmers who had leased land, and the owner had sent people to come and collect the, the proceeds from the farming that they were doing. And they were getting rid of all those people. And those were prophets. That was illustration of prophets. And then it said that the owner sent his son finally because he thought, surely they won't kill my son. And they killed his son. And the religious leaders figured out Jesus is talking about us in this story about farming. Then he went on and or they, they started asking him a series of questions trying to trick him. They asked him about taxes. Should we pay our taxes? You talk about that all the time, don't you? How much tax should we pay? Here's a loophole over here or whatever. Jesus said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's, give to God what's God's. He answered them brilliantly. The Sadducees, one of the, one of the great passages here where they were talking to him in uh, Matthew or Mark chapter 12. He was talking uh, or they were asking him 
They sent Sadducees, and Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, okay? They don't believe that there's a bodily resurrection. So they come and they, these Sadducees ask Jesus, so in the resurrection, whose husband is this woman going to be? She'd been married to five, six people, right? And they don't even believe in the resurrection, okay? So they're asking questions, trying to trick him and trying to trap him that they don't even think there's a real answer to. Jesus just kept answering masterfully and silencing them with every answer. Sometimes he'd give them an answer. Sometimes he'd just ask another question. But they were stymied. They couldn't go on. So then at the end of the day, again, this is Tuesday, he goes out with his disciple to the Mount of Olives, and they have what we call the Olivet Discourse. And in that, it was an intimate moment with Jesus and his disciples. He was telling them the time is coming, and this is what's about to happen. And and then they started asking, well, when's all this going to happen? And when are you going to come back and set up the kingdom? And he said, just be ready. Just be aware. Just be aware. Watch the signs of the times. And, and, on. and you can study that out for yourself. That's Mark chapter 13. Spend some time in that. And then we come to Wednesday. Wednesday. And that's what we know about Wednesday. Right. As far as what Jesus did. We think he was probably hanging out with uh, his disciples and some friends at a guy called Simon's house. Not this Simon, but another Simon. And so he was hanging out there, maybe resting up for what was about to come on Thursday, Friday, and then onwards. But we know that the leading priest and the Pharisees on Wednesday were plotting to kill Jesus. They were making their plans to kill Jesus. Jesus or Judas, met with the religious leaders on that day. It says this, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the leading priests to arrange to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted when they heard why he had come, and they promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. That was all on Wednesday. Then we move to Thursday. Thursday, we see Jesus spending time with his disciples in the evening, having the Last Supper. But Thursday included preparation for that. They're planning for the Passover meal. And John's account of, uh, of this shows a moment after they had planned and got it all set up. And they're there at the meal. John shows an account in John chapter 13 of Jesus washing the disciples' feet said he took his outer cloak off and wrapped himself in a towel and started washing their feet. And if you're familiar with this, when he came to Peter, Peter said, no, 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 you're not washing my feet. You're, you're Jesus. No, it's not going to happen. And Jesus said, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And Peter said, okay, then give me a bath. You know, wash everything. It's a beautiful account in John chapter 13. Jesus did this to teach them about servanthood. And he said, just like I've done this for you, you do this for each other. You do this for others. Jesus is teaching them about servanthood because he's going to be gone and he wants them to follow in his steps. As I reflected on this moment this week when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, I realized, and this is a spoiler alert for maybe Friday or over the weekend sometime, these same feet that Jesus was washing that he was knelt down in front of, that he had in his hands and was cleaning the dust off. And those same feet of all of the disciples walked away from Jesus in his moment of need, in his most 
horrific moment when he was being beaten and flogged and on trial, they all scattered. That really gripped my heart. Just the image of Jesus washing their feet and then those feet walking away from him. Let that settle in a little bit for you. In that moment, Jesus tells them who's going to, or that someone's going to betray him. He said this. In the evening, Jesus arrived with the 12. As they were at the table eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you eating with me here will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one? Think about that. Why would they each ask, am I the one? Wouldn't they know whether they were or not? I would suggest to you that they all had a good self-awareness to realize that they all had that potential. Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. And they said, is it me? Is it me? So he goes on and institutes what we understand as communion. And we're going to observe that together with the disciples and Jesus here in just a few minutes where he takes the bread and the cup and everything. And we're going to do that in just a few minutes. But I want us to stop for a moment and look at this week leading up to now. We're at Thursday. What can we learn about those five days of Jesus' life or from those five days of Jesus' life. See, Jesus was God in the flesh and I'm not gonna put a burden on you to, to say you have to be exactly like Jesus. We should all be striving to be like Jesus, but that's a big call. But I believe there's some principles we can learn about the way Jesus handled himself that week that we can apply to our lives to help us grow in our faith. First of all, in Jesus, we see humility. We see him riding in on a donkey instead of a stallion. We see him washing the disciples' feet, taking that humble position of a servant. And then in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, writing about Jesus' time on earth, said this. He said, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus was humble, and Paul says, you should have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. If he could humble himself, certainly we need to humble ourselves in a world where everyone is concerned about their rights, we need to be willing to set aside our rights for the good of others, of serving others. We need to be willing to stop in our hectic, frantic pace when we see someone in need and say, how can I help? How can I serve you? We also see that Jesus not only was humble, but he had a heart of compassion. We see him weeping over Jerusalem. And again, that was the ugly crying. That was the sobbing. That was the, the sad and, and desperate crying. When was the last time the plight of people gripped your heart and caused you to shed a tear? I was convicted about that this week. As I'm out and about and things, I was actually at the gym one day this week. 
And I saw people walking around while I was on the elliptical thing for like three hours. Not really. Not really. It's about 12 minutes. But as I saw people walking by, and maybe some of this was already starting to filter in my head because I've been, been reading it and thinking about it. And I thought, I see these people pass by all the time. And I never stop to think anymore about who they are, what their story might be. The fact that they are people who potentially are lost and without an eternal hope. I thought about that. I processed that. And now everywhere I go and I'm seeing people, that's just flooding my mind. And I think that's a good thing. I'm not sobbing. I'm not wailing and, and things like that yet. But it's starting to touch my heart again. And I say again. Because early days of ministry, that's kind of what drove me to ministry, seeing people. So I would encourage you, as you go out and about this week, to slow down a little bit. See people that are made in the image of God, who are living far from God, recognizing their need. And wonder even in yourself, what's their story? Maybe you have opportunity then to engage in their story and to give them some hope. Not only... Did Jesus have a heart of compassion? But he hated hypocrisy. He cursed the fig tree. He cleansed the temple. And you know, as people, we can be pretty good at hating things, right? We can get pretty grumpy when things uh, aren't the way they should be. We look around at society and uh, we, we are very quick to complain about all the social ills and the political stuff going on. And sometimes the world is a messy, messy place. You know, some churches build their whole reason for existence around those things. They find the social issues of the day, and, and they build their, 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 their brand around hating the world because of these things. I don't see Jesus doing that. His example was he went into the religious institution and turned over tables. But he sat with the marginalized and he ate with the outcast that were far from. And he would challenge them and say, hey, it's all right, go and sin no more. He would confront their sin lovingly and with care. That should characterize a church, not the things that we are against. For far too long, the churches around the world have been characterized by what they're against rather than what they're for. We want to deliver hope to people, not condemn people. And then Jesus finally we see the humanity of Christ. He was hanging out at Simon's house. We didn't get to this passage, but later on that night, Thursday night, he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweat, great drops of blood, and he said, Father, if it's possible, take this away from me. In my humanity, I do not want to suffer what I'm about to have to go through. Nevertheless, not, your will, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus was God, but he was also human. He understands. He empathizes with what we go through. We saw that in Philippians chapter 2 where he came as a man. And Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says, We don't have a great high priest who doesn't understand, but he has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You ever go through stuff in life and you think people just don't understand? Nobody understands. Maybe nobody cares. You feel that way. Guess what? Jesus understands your humanity because he experienced humanity 
so that he could understand your humanity and my humanity, so he could empathize with us in those moments. I hope that you are thankful for that last week of Jesus' life. It's not all pretty. Come back Sunday to find out the end of the story, though. Next week, we get to celebrate the end of the story. Not all weeks are created equal, and a lot can change in one week. And I am excited to join with you again next Sunday to talk about his resurrection and what difference that makes for all of us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for us that sent Jesus to die. Lord, as we reflected today on this last week of Jesus' life, it's um, humbling. It's challenging. Lord, it has scenes in, in, in his last week that, that make us uncomfortable. And Lord, we thank you that he didn't shy away from it. And even in that week where he knew what was coming, he showed us how to be humble. And he showed us how to have a heart of compassion for others. Lord, he showed us that sometimes we need to hate hypocrisy. And Lord, thank you for his humanity so that we can be confident that we have someone who cares and who is relatable to us in Jesus. Thank you so much for your love for us that made this week what it is. In Jesus' name, amen.